Sunday of Advent, and we know that the theme is love. As we started with Psalm 89, I will make known, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. Sing of the love of God, the, the hissing of God. And we're in Luke chapter 1 this morning, and we're in season of waiting. Sometimes we want to rush to Christmas, sing all the carols, and we kind of take the wonder, snap the wonder out of it. When the whole Advent season is meant to prepare ourselves to encounter Christ, the revelation of who He is within our hearts, within our lives, within our communities, within our society. And as we've been talking about hope and peace and joy, and today, love, we are in this time of waiting. <laughs> and we've really learned how to wait in this pandemic season that we've just come through and are still in. And we become sensitive to that practice of waiting and building up our patience and our peace. Uh, fear, anxiety, uncertainty has affected all of us. No one is left out of that uh, equation of, of uh, fear or anxiety or uncertainty. The future is unclear. Yes, the vaccine has arrived, but what does that mean? <laughs> We're still wearing masks. We're still on lockdown. We don't know the next step. All we can do is wait. But what keeps wait excited and the wonder never sapped from waiting is that you know who you are waiting for. We're waiting for a day without COVID, but we, as the people of God, are waiting for Christ our Lord. That's what we're waiting for. We're not waiting in vain. We have a purpose. We have a focus point. We know what we are waiting for, are we? Do we? And today we look at this passage about divine love through the highly favored one that was read earlier on. And as one person said, the love of a good mother is always a wonderful thing. So wonderful, in fact, that a holiday has been set aside to celebrate it, Mother's Day. But this is not about Mother's Day. It goes on to say, to reduce this text to the love of two mothers, Elizabeth and her relative Mary, would be in some sense to place love in a box in a box reserved for biological connection. And that would miss the very miraculous ways in which this story subverts biology altogether. Yes, you came for a science lesson this morning. See, Elizabeth being far too old to conceive to give birth, the cousin of Mary, and Mary being a virgin, how's that possible? How can it be are our own words? But if we would only concentrate on the love of mothers, we will miss something that's greater than we can imagine in this text. This love, this true love, while not reserved for only those with biological connection, is also not about sentimentality or feeling or being connected to someone that you love. See, in the Bible, love has a lot to do with this. It has a lot to do with faithfulness. And the prophetic book of Hosea makes this clear. That Israel, instead of worshiping God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when chasing other gods, they were unfaithful. I can never say, I love my wife, if I've been unfaithful to my wife. You can never say, I love God, or I love the church, but you're unfaithful to God, or to the church, or to your family. Love has to be connected to faithfulness, or else it is not love. It's a biological connection. You can figure it out in the science book. You can figure it out in our society. Sentimentalism. But that's not what love is. God loves us because God is faithful to us. 
And while the faithfulness of a good mother might be a blessing for some, our belovedness is not contingent on our faithfulness. Our love is contingent on the faithfulness of God. Do you know God loves us? Do you know that God is faithful? That God, as we said even on Wednesday night, does not want to turn his face away from you. He turns his face towards you. And in turning his face towards you, he gives you shalom. He gives you peace. In the coming of Christ, in the coming of the word that spoke things into existence, God turned to humanity and said, I'm here. I love you. I love you. And it has this strange beginning with a young girl. God is faithful, and God keeps his word. Mary, who's she? Highly favored by the Almighty God. Where does she come from? We get this message from Gabriel. He's already been mentioned. For those who have been reading the, the Gospel of St. Luke, he's already been mentioned in the Zechariah story, and Elizabeth story, the father and mother of John the Baptist. And this angel has a habit of invading and intruding into the regular, ordinary routines of life. And he goes and he comes into the life of this young girl from Nazareth. And Nazareth is an old place land. It's a nowhere place. It's not even mentioned in the Old Testament at all. It's in Galilee. In Galilee, where Jesus eventually came to live, was a place that was also inhabited by Gentiles, those people that were not part of God's family. And she's favored by God, and yet she has no social status. She's barely from 12 to 14, take your guess. It's still pretty young for me. She's about that age. She has no monetary clout. She has no money. She's not an economic wizard. And yet she is favored by the Lord oh God. And God sends an angel named Gabe, Gabriel to bring her personal congratulations. You are the highly favored one. You see, it was a custom in those days that the prophets would always congratulate the mothers-to-be because they never knew when the child was to be born. They never knew if that child would be the Messiah. So the prophets, always, the men of God always went, and whenever a child was born, they congratulated the family because who knew that that child might one day become the Messiah? God in the flesh. She's favored by God, and, and this is her initiation into a new season of life. How's that for initiation? Now, you picture an angel. Now, whatever image you have in an angel, and coming to a 12 to 14-year-old and said, you're highly favored of God, I'm sure you're not standing still. I'm sure there's a little bit of fear there. I'm sure there's a little bit of trembling is there as well. Can you put yourself in Mary's position? She's innocent. She's just growing up in life. She hasn't even truly experienced the fullness of life. And then this angel, and we can use a little bit of our imagination here, that he comes with a chariot with four other cherubim and seraphim on his sides, and he comes and says, Hail, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. You are blessed among women. What in the heck is going on here? I mean, those that have been around long enough, this is where Ave Maria comes from. And some of you thought that song was unbiblical. Yes, it is. It's based on this scripture. The highly favored one. 
What would you do if the angels of heaven came at your front door singing biblical carols and invaded our daily routine of caroling on Wednesday night? <laughs> and we're singing and you see seeing angels behind us. What would you do? I bet you a lot of you would freak out and probably close the door. That's what would happen. How would you respond? I would say the same as Mary. Fear, trembling, shaking, wondering what was behind a greeting like that. Did you know that Mary's resume doesn't even qualify her to be favored, to be the mother of the Son of God? There's nothing in our text that would set her apart as extraordinary. I don't know, do you read the Bible that way? Or are you just so used to what's there that you miss what Luke is trying to tell us here? A young girl from a nowhere place called Nazareth is visited by an angel and is highly selected by the Lord who delivered the Israelites out of Egypt to become the mother of the Messiah. That's the point that's here in this passage. And what does Mary do? She does what we do. She responds with fear. Fear, troubled. Wondering what the heck is going on. There she is, a young girl, 13 to 14, living in Nazareth, living in a place occupied by Roman Empire, a place that, that they haven't had rulership over the land for a long, long time. Kingdoms came and kingdoms went and new kingdoms came and they've been oppressed and oppressed and oppressed and then an angel shows up on your doorstep and says, you're going to be the mother of the future king, not of the Israel, not the future king of the Roman Empire, not the future king of the old Greek Empire, but the future king of the universe, of the universe. Mary's troubled as any one of us would be troubled. The story helps us to ponder with the afraid, the surprised, the, the perplexed among ourselves. Is that you? Are you surprised? Are you perplexed? Are you afraid? Are you falling into the category of Mary as a young girl? And some of us will think, well, how is she going to understand? She's only a girl. And we try to push off that only adults can understand the story, because we know it. But there's Mary at 12 and 14, and, and at the beginning she's not getting it, but stay with me as we move through this story. And the angel says to her, do not be afraid. Yeah, really. <laughs> do not be afraid. Oh. She's probably saying, and we're getting a little bit personal, we're using our imagination a bit this morning. Hey, Gabe, you really think I'm supposed to feel okay, unafraid, because you say so? Who do you think you are? And she probably asked a question like this in our imagination. Are you sure you're from the Lord's camp of angels, or are you from the camp of Satan? <laughs> you sure your name is not Lucifer instead of Gabe and Gabriel? Are you sure? So can you imagine a young teenage girl not being fearful of the responsibility that Mary would have? Some of us in our midlife or even in our senior lives would run away from that responsibility. Oh, I love Jesus and I can't wait till he comes. But when we give responsibility, we back off. We back off. But not this young girl, as we will find out. Luke has redirected our gaze from the palace in Rome and the palace in Jerusalem, and the centers of power and management and money and economic boom from both of those centers, from the place where Zechariah and Elizabeth live, because Zechariah is a high priest, and he's in a temple area in the beginning of Luke chapter 1. In 
Luke takes us from the places of power to the places of peasantry and powerlessness. And guess what he chooses? To be the place of the birth of the Messiah. Powerlessness instead of power. And yet we spend all our time trying to have power over the government, power over the community, power over the municipality, when God wants to choose those that are powerless to display his power, to feed the hungry, to take care of the poor, to treat everybody with love, true love, faithful love, that doesn't back up from responsibility. And Mary's not only powerless, and she's married or she's engaged at this point to a builder, a carpenter, a blue-collar worker. It's not the Ivy Leagues of Harvard or McGill or McMaster and Hamilton and Kingston and the UPI University where God is looking for the ones that will serve him or the ones he's going to use for his glory. It's in the little places of the world, the noticeable places that God goes to make his plans work. Mary seems to be at ease as the dialogue continues between her and Gabe. They're still talking. But one of the things that we need to interject here is that in our celebration of the season, we get caught up with the mechanics. We put up a Christmas tree. We put up lights. I'm not against that. Just follow me before you turn me off, right? And the gifts that we give to each other. The songs we sing or the songs we should sing and the songs that we shouldn't sing. And these are the mechanics. These are things that we do. And in the process of our being so focused on the mechanics of the season, we lose sight of the essence of the season. We we lose sight of the surprise that we're waiting for, Jesus Christ himself. And that's why, as my wife often said, when it gets to Boxing Day, you say, where did this season go? What has happened? Because we're so caught up in mechanics instead of the essence. See, the essence of the gospel, it's not about you, my friends. It's about Him. Him. The God who created all things, and for His pleasure they were created. Holy and worthy and honorable is He. Hello? And the story goes, and they continue to have this dialogue. And she receives further instructions. (laughs) And Mary's probably thinking, you're kidding me, right? Remember, 12, 14 years old, and you get a prophecy like this, and you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Like, what is going on? She's got to be thinking these things. I'm barely a child. I'm a virgin, and you're telling me I'm going to have a baby? What kind of holy favor is having a baby out of wedlock? Can you answer that? What type of favor is that? And she's probably telling Gabe, Gabriel, the angel, she's probably saying, you know, Gabe, I haven't had sex yet, so how's this possible? Now I'm going to have a child? Impossible, right, Gabe? And then she's probably saying, are you sure your name's not Lucifer again? Just checking. Get used to your imagination when you read Scripture. Don't prostitute the text, but use your imagination to see what these guys are going through in this passage. See, in the ancient days, as well as our contemporary world, anyone claiming to be pregnant without sexual relationships was thought to be covering up a moral or social offense, a scandal. And Gabe, the angel, provides the name to be given to this son. 
Not only is saying that you're going to conceive and give birth to a son, but I'm going to tell you what to name this son. He's to be called Jesus, right? Well, the Hebrews, they know what this name means. It's Yeshua, it's Joshua. It's Yahweh is a liberator. It's Yahweh is the God of liberation. God is our freedom fighter. He's the one who splits the Red Sea so that we can travel into the land of freedom, and we are free at last. Are you free at last? Are you free at last? Are you sure? Are you sure? Or maybe you're buried underneath the mechanics of the season. And you probably thought when we played the song in the bleak midwinter, which is one of the most famous carols in the UK, what's snow on snow got to do with anything, right? And water like stone, before you get to the, the verses that speak about the Christ child and the birth of Christ, it's got to do with all the stuff that we put on each other, all the stuff that we cover up the season and we miss out on what is underneath it all. Hiding us from the surprise that we are waiting for Jesus Christ. In the past, God already brought the people out of oppression. And we know that story so well. But there's a need for a new liberation, is there not? Not only from the Pharaoh of Egypt, not only from the empire of Rome and the Caesars that rule. There is time has come in history for the liberation of the power of sin and death and hell. And that has come in the person of this child that we worship and adore, Christ Jesus. That's why he has come, and that's why he is here now. He's not only the God who was and who is to come, he's the God who is, who is here and is to come. He is a here God. Hello? It's not that he came and he's coming. He's coming right now in this place because his presence is here. Hello? Heaven is not a place. Heaven is the presence of God in our midst, wherever God's people are. Why is this so hard for people to understand? Because we put mechanics upon mechanics, because we put snow upon snow and upon snow, and we miss it. We miss the very person that's right here, whispering in our ears and speaking to our hearts. You see... This nowhere place of Nazareth is the place God chooses. And God's not like the Greeks and all their philosophies about God and all their stories of tragedy and grief that have no purpose and no meaning. At the end of the day, that's why when you die, you die, and so what? Our story is not like that, because even if we die, Jesus said, yet we shall live. Hello? Even though we die, yet we shall live. We're not like a Greek tragic story that they love to tell over and over again. So Mary, once again, doesn't qualify. Her resume doesn't speak of anything extraordinary. She comes from Nazareth, not Bethlehem. Wrong town. She's too young. She comes from the lower social status, not royalty. Yet one day, this very ordinary young girl from the backwoods of the Roman Empire, whose resume was all wrong, who probably couldn't even read or write, was chosen for probably the greatest honor ever given. To any human being, any human being, to be the mother of the Messiah. This child does have connections to David's house. The angel Gabriel told Mary that Joseph's in line with the house of David. And this child will one day grow up to be more powerful than any Caesar, more powerful than any Pharaoh, more powerful than any president, more powerful than any prime minister that's ever walked the face of the earth because his power speaks to the need of humanity to be set free from the power of sin and death. 
Those you should capitalize. Because that's what Jesus came to do. Now she's still receiving further instructions. And she's still saying, how in the heck is this all going to work out? Don't you think she thought these thoughts? I do. Whether you, <laughs> How's this going to be? Right? She's perplexed like you are. See, it's not only full of grace, but Mary's heart's full of curiosity. Curiosity is a good thing. You know, sometimes we make a sin out of certainty. Because we say we believe with such certainty that we miss the concept of faith. Faith requires courage and risk. You need to step into faith. Abraham had to follow and leave behind everything. He needed courage and he needed risk. Certainty didn't get where he was going. Trust did. Knowing that God is faithful and God is love got him to where he needed to be. Not certainty. How could this be since I do not know a man? The answer is not given in biological form. Gabe says the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. This is Luke. In the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, seven times he's mentioned the Holy Spirit. No wonder he fell in love with God, the Holy Spirit, and he wrote about it in the book of Acts all over the place, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He already started in this gospel to clue us in the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of humanity, and yet we miss it because we have mechanics upon mechanics that become mechanics, and we miss the essence of the story. We miss the essence. He will come upon you. The power of the highest would overshadow you. And that the Holy One who is to be born would be called the Son of Man. And Mary's probably saying, what's happening here? <laughs> what's happening here? That God's going to impregnate Mary with the eternal seed of the Messiah so that evil and injustice comes to the end. That's what we're waiting for when Jesus has come. Judgment's coming. And so is the eradication, as we said a few weeks ago, of evil. He's coming to judge evil in the land and rid it evil of its purpose. It's not going to happen by human action, my friends. It's going to happen by divine action. God started the work with the Holy Spirit in the life of Mary. See, the story of barrenness that we find in Luke's chapter 1 in Elizabeth, we find in the Old Testament, Sarah, barren, and Abraham, past the age, and God works a miracle. We have Rebecca. We have Hannah who prayed day in and day out in the, in the temple. And then finally Samuel is birth, right? And then we come to Elizabeth that preceded this story in Luke's gospel in ch chapter 1 that she was barren too. And, and God uh, sent the angel to appear to Zechariah. And then all of a sudden in this passage tells us she's in her sixth month. And so God has a way to take barrenness and turn it into fruitfulness. Hello? Sometimes we say, well, the church is not growing, and that's not growing, and we, we talk of scarcity, we talk of barrenness. But we need to trust God, that God can take our barren situation and turn it into a fruitful one. Anybody got any courage and risk in their spirits to move in that direction? But this story is a little bit different, isn't it? Abraham had Sarah. Hannah had her husband. Elizabeth had Zechariah. They're couples. <laughs> Of course they went to bed and God blessed their union. But Mary's alone. She doesn't have that other person yet. She's not sleeping with Joseph yet. She's alone. 
And yet the promise comes to her and we find the words, no word from God will fail. Or some of your translation, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. So what's Mary's answer going to be to all this? What would your answer be? What would your answer be? At 12 and 14 years old like her, what would your answer be? Would you have run from Gabe at this point and stage of the journey? Or would you respond like Mary responds? Yes. I don't think it was a calm yes, right? She says not only was her heart curious and full of grace, but she has the posture of servanthood. She's a servant. She's humble. And she says, may your word to me be fulfilled. She's favored because she's come to understand in her journey with God, no matter how young she is, that it's better to submit to the will of the Lord than oppose the will of the Lord. Zechariah's story is there for a purpose. What did Zechariah did? He spoke against the angel's instructions, right? And what was the result of his, his disobedience to what God had in store for him through that was muteness. He wasn't able to speak until after John the Baptist was born, and he was supposed to give him a name that was not part of the family history of names. But this young girl, who comes from a nowhere place called Nazareth, and is so young, against this high priest that performs daily sacrifices in the temple of God, she got it, and he didn't. Hello? She chose to obey the angel and not disobey the angel's instructions. William Barclay once said that the world's most popular prayer is thy will be changed. <laughs> but he also said the world's greatest prayer is thy will be done, O Lord. What's your prayers? Thy will be done? Or Lord, could you just change that a bit in my life? I'm not really, you know, liking what's happening now. Can you just change that so... I can have a better, easier life. See, Mary prayed the latter. Thy will be done. As Eugene Peterson once said, it was Mary's prayer that influenced Jesus that night in the Garden of Gethsemane before he surrendered all for the sake of the world. When he was wrestling with the cup of suffering, right? Take this cup from me. And then at the end he said, thy will be done. He learned from his mother's prayer. He learned from his mother's prayer. It's not the prayer of unbelief like Zechariah. It's not John the Baptist's father who asked for a sign. Mary didn't ask for a sign. The angel said, I'll give you a sign. A son is to be born. He's not like the egomaniac King Harold, who was a phony king. It's the prayer of a servant girl. A simple, young servant girl. Her obedient submission to God explodes in a glorious part and later on in chapter 1 where it says, you know, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That was the response of a servant girl. Fear and trembling <laughs> in the presence of an angel of, sent by God, God's messenger, that she responds in the affirmative when all the older folk turned away <laughs> and went their way. What's God trying to teach us in this story? Saying yes to God is the beginning or the genesis of every miracle. You won't get to the miracle without yes, without submission. 
Saying yes to God is the beginning of every ministry. You can't start a church or plant a church if you haven't said yes to God first. Saying yes is the start of every journey toward healing, both for yourself and for others. You won't have reconciliation between uh, husband and wife or between parents and children or between you and people that you are at odds with unless you begin with an affirmative, yes, I will submit to you, O Lord, and whatever you have in store for me. You won't go to those places by always saying, nope, it's not for me. Nope, it's not for me. No, it's not for me. Can you go carol singing on Wednesday night? No. You're not going to get anywhere with those no's. But if you turn them to yeses, to the Lord, then a revolution will take place. Then something's going to begin to shake, not ourselves, but the world's going to begin to shake. Because then the world's going to know that God's people are finally serious. Serious. Here we have Mary, inexperienced. She hasn't even had sex yet. She does have what others lack, though. She makes herself available to God. And that's a beautiful thing. And like Mary, we're all called to respond to the essence and not to the mechanics of life. Hello? How's your response to God, the revelation of God? God shows himself to you. Do you understand what I'm talking? This is how salvation happens. God shows himself to you, and you respond to his presence of heaven coming to you now, not at the end of your life, now. He's coming, and he's knocking, and he's speaking to us. And we can say the simple answer, I accepted him to my heart, but I don't know, is there a bed in your autoric valve? Is that what you call it? A-O-R-T-I-C? You think there's a bed there? Then Jesus goes to sleep in that? No, I don't think so. It's the center of who you are as a being, of representing the race, human race, right? God comes to live with you and through you and be a change agent in our world. See, what's happening in the story that sometimes we miss it is because we don't read enough of the First Testament, the Old Testament, and we jump to the new without understanding the old. And you know, I'm beating an old horse in this, but that's maybe one day I'm going to wake up and people are going to start asking Old Testament questions. You see, when you go back to the garden, right, and you have Eve, who also was a virgin at that time, and now what's happening in Luke chapter 1 is the knot. This is from an early church father, Arianus. The knot of Eve's disobedience was untied by Mary's obedience. For what the virgin Eve tied to her unbelief, this Mary untied by her belief. Hello? There's something powerful happening here. Real powerful. And because of her untying of Eve's disbelief, God's mission of love has been spread throughout the world. Because one young girl said, yes, Lord, yes. Dave Mathis said that the God who created our world and humanity as the apex of his creation came into our world as human, not just for a show, hello, not just for the mechanics, but for our salvation, the essence. Hello? Not for the show, but for our salvation. He came to restore us rebels. I was a rebel, and so were you, aren't you? Hello? To himself. The text is also a celebration of a woman's biology. Hello? As the means in which the divine incepted grew and emerged in the world, the divine one who loves us so much. Do you understand what I'm saying there? 
that God used a woman's biology to give birth to the Messiah to come. Because throughout history, what men have done with the woman's biology is looked at the woman's biology with lust, looked at their monthly cycle with disgust, and looked at them as the lesser value of society. And now she's chosen as the one to be elevated instead of demoted in society. Don't listen to the socialists, uh, so, socialists in our world that thinks this place of giving women high honor is their idea. It's been here all along. It's been here all along. We were never to demean the opposite sex, but we were to build each other up in the faith. Hello? Love comes down. That's why, for God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn it, very important, but that through him they might have life. Life. Don't leave 17 when you're reading John 3.16. It's very important for us. As the worship team comes, this is the story of the Annunciation. It's a reminder for all of us that are afraid. It's a reminder for all of us that are surprised. It's a reminder for all of us that are perplexed, who live in strange times like we are living. It shifts our eyes, it shifts our focus to see the Almighty One, the Merciful One, the Faithful One, the God who comes to us. It invites us to take part in what He does with calm and trusting obedience with the power of the Holy Spirit that lifts up the lonely and fills the mouths of the hungry. This experience that Mary had that started with fear and trembling and shaking ended up in calm. Because that's what the presence of God does to our lives. Amen.